occasion of some sort, right? And so, super excited for today. Uh, in God's providence and timing, uh, we're coming to Titus uh, 1, 5 through 9, talking about qualifi- uh, the qualifications of an elder and the setting up of elders. And at the very same time, God has ordained a super exciting and special moment in the life of our congregation. Um, someone that has come here as a membership, a family that has come here as members, uh, that we have seen fit to elevate into a staff position, uh, as the congregation has seen fit to elevate into a staff position. Uh, now, after over a year of ministry, and I think all of us would acknowledge proven faithfulness and effective ministry and used by God in really awesome ways, uh, we are going to set apart Micah uh, and ordain him to gospel ministry today. Uh, and so we're going to get to celebrate that as we look at these qualifications. And so really exciting day, a lot to celebrate uh, in the life of our congregation. And so uh, looking forward to that. So we'll be in Titus chapter 1. Um, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. We introduced it. It's one of the three pastoral epistles. That is Paul writing to pastors, sons in the faith that he's trained up about how to organize the church, how to get the church straight, uh, but also just this pastorly advice for specific issues in the churches they're facing and uh, for also these general things that that should be part of churches. And so um, the key theme of Titus, genuine faith must lead to growing godliness. Genuine faith must lead to growing godliness. And so what we're going to see over and over again in this letter, we saw it in the introduction and we'll see it throughout, is that genuine saving faith has to do something to you, right? And so we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but saving faith alone never remains alone. It is always accompanied by a changed life, and it's always accompanied by a life through the book. Paul said, I've got, th- I've got these aims as an apostle. Here's what I'm about as an apostle. And he linked together three things that we can't separate out, the three things that go together as a natural part of this gospel salvation. And so he said, I'm aiming for your saving faith. Right? I'm aiming uh, for the faith of God's people. But saving faith alone never remains alone. And so I'm also aiming for your knowledge of the truth, your knowledge of the gospel, your knowledge of Christian teaching and Christian living. I'm aiming, and we talked about this, the, the better word for that might be abiding. Because he doesn't want them to just grow in knowing about Jesus and knowing about God. He wants them to grow in experiencing their knowledge of God, experiencing God himself. And so he wants them to, he's aiming for their saving faith that will produce this abiding in Jesus, this experience of God. But that never stays alone either. Because if you genuinely experience God, it will accord with godliness. It will lead to godly living. It will lead to practical outworking of that inside faith into the outside world. And so a lot of times we're like, ah, yeah, I I believed when I was six. I raised my hand at VBS. I prayed a prayer, and that's kind of it. And he wars against that, right? These other elements have to be in place. But I think probably the bigger danger for you and I is this. We substitute actual application of Christian living. And in place of that, we substitute growing knowledge. So if I know a lot of stuff about God, it really kind of substitutes for living out practical Christian living. It it, it eliminates my need to apply it. And he confronts that. But he also confronts us falling on the other side of the spectrum where it's like, I'm going to work, I'm going to serve, and I'm going to do totally disconnected from abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Faith 
leads us to abide in Jesus, to know him and experience him, leads to a changed life. So then that flows into today. And today he's going to be dealing with the, the qualifications for elders. But, but why is it here? All right. Why is this, this passage here as we, as we jump into it? And what I would say is what are the main problems within the church at Crete? Problem one, they have false teaching and false doctrine. That's next week or whenever we get to it. All right. So false teaching, there is error in their doctrine. You know what the other problem in the church at Crete is? Rampant immorality. So the culture that's known that basically the, the synonym for Crete is immorality. And so you have error and immorality. How does God solve error and immorality? What's his main weapon within the church against error and immorality? Qualified leaders who will combat error with every fiber of their being and they will not rest until false teaching is removed. What is God's solution to rampant immorality? Qualified men who have the integrity of life and the boldness of speech to confront sin and call to godliness. So why does he frame the letter about error and immorality starting here? Because his main solution to the problems of creed is let's get men in place. Let's get leaders in place that are going to go fight for doctrinal purity and are going to go fight for living purity. And so uh, we get into these characteristics, and they're pretty challenging. And every time we ordain someone, they're challenging. How do we properly honor how absolute these words are? How do we properly honor how stringent these qualifications are with the fact that we have real human beings that have to occupy these things that are not perfect and that can't live them out perfectly? And so what I would say is this. The qualifications that we're about to look at are intense, and they are serious. And they should be. If you are going to be the stand-in for God among his family, the stand-in for God among his flock, the stand-in for God on behalf of him to his people, if you're going to be the the under-shepherd, if you're going to be the leader of the house of God, it's serious business. It's intense business. So, yeah, it's very serious. But on the other hand, I think we hold intention this, and this is how we've kind of worked it out, Are these qualifications present, stable, track record, and growing? And so what are we looking for within men to honor these qualifications? Are these qualifications present? Like getting the title so that you can grow up into these things, that's not the way this works. Are these qualities present? Is there a track record that we can observe as people, as congregation, who elevate them? And are they continuing to grow and not grow stagnant? In these things. And so holding these things intense, serious and intense with there's real human beings. And so is it present? Is there a track record? Are they moving forward? And so here's how I I want to kind of frame it out as we get into it is on balance, when you take the composite of a leader's life, is there enough within that composite sketch, stable track record and growing, enough within that composite sketch that if, if you look at their life and if you look at their family and if you look at their character and you start kind of drifting in their direction, will it take you towards more, to being more like Jesus? Will it take you towards God? Right? And so I think on balance as a composite sketch, if you follow your leaders, will those leaders get you in the general direction of Jesus' likeness? So I think that's what it's kind of aiming for here, uh, because as we go into these qualifications, what you're going to realize, you know, like nine out of ten of them are, are commands to you. 
They're not unique. They're not different. They're not special. Right? I'm not supposed to be self-controlled, but you, you don't worry about it. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit to be self-controlled. Right? I shouldn't be arrogant, but why don't you go ahead and be arrogant? That's a good Christian trait to have unless you're a leader. No, it is exactly the same commands that are given to you as believers. So what is the point? Let's make sure our leaders are far enough ahead in these characters and qualifications that you can follow them and grow into more humility, grow into more self-control, grow into more love for your family. So that, that's kind of what... The, that is the framework I use as, as I try to walk through these. And so uh, in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover for good, of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as it was taught so that he may be able to, uh, to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. So, Father, I thank you for the church called Fletcher. I thank you for the men whose stories you've written these qualifications over their lives. I thank you for the, for the faithful men throughout this congregation that don't have this title, but live this testimony, that live this growth, that live this love for family and love for church. God, I just thank you that you have a group of men and a group of people called Fletcher that love Jesus and want to progress in Jesus. And so I pray that as we elevate, uh, as we ordain Micah today, and as we think about ourselves as leaders, and as we think about leaders in the future, Father, that we would be men that take so seriously running after Jesus, and that we would only see men elevated that would help us run after Jesus. That would help us look to Jesus. Look to a living example that can get us in his direction. And so, Father, I pray there would be a lot of weight on our hearts today. I pray there'd be a lot of challenge and conviction on our hearts today. I pray there'd be a lot of rejoicing in the grace that saves us by grace alone today. And I pray it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, So as we jump into the text, follow blameless leaders towards blamelessness. Follow blameless leaders towards blamelessness. Um, The first element that God gets into is do they love and lead their families in a way that helps you love and lead yours? Do they love and lead your family in a way that helps you love and lead yours? It's really easy and really tempting for us as men to run off into the workplace and build a little work kingdom. Right? If I go to the work kingdom, I find that I, I get some rewards from that. If I build a work kingdom, I find there's people that appreciate that. If I build a work kingdom, I find that I can grow that pretty well. If I get to a if I build a work kingdom, I find there's monetary reward attached to it. If I build a work kingdom, I find that there's affirmation attached to that. Uh, Amy and I were just talking about this week. You know, there's this amazing thing that happens. Like some of you actually want to have coffee with us or, or lunch with us. And like you actually want to hear what we say sometimes. It's an amazing feeling. We go home to a group of teenagers, and it's like, are you still talking, and why? And you're like, do you realize there's people that actually want to hear what we have to say? 
it's a lot easier to go to work. A lot more affirmation that's easier to gain at work. And I've seen that happen. I've had seasons in my own life where it's happened where I built a work kingdom and my home goes into ruins while I do it. There's another danger, I think, that that men face in reaction to that, and that's the danger of, well, I'm going to just bunker down in my home, and I'm going to deal with my home, and I'm not going to let anything get in the way of my home, and so I can't sacrifice in service for Jesus' home. I can't work any extra or be diligent and effective in my job as a representation of Jesus at my job. No, home. And they become almost second moms. I think that's a danger. And so if we are going to challenge you as a congregation to be crazy in love with each other as your spouses, and if we're going to challenge you as a congregation to sacrifice in the service of King Jesus, and if we're going to challenge you uh, to go to work as unto the Lord and figuring out how to balance these priorities in the specific season of life you're in, then it requires some integrity out of us within our family life, within our work life, and within our service of Jesus' life to do that. And so do we elevate men who have the integrity to sit in front of other men and say, you have gotten your priorities out of whack. To sit down in front of other men and in other families and challenge them. You're not loving your wife the way Christ loved the church. Or to sit down with other men and challenge them. There is a sacrifice worthy of your life and his name is Jesus Christ. And so get off your, your butt and quit you know, bunkering down behind the walls and the moats of your house. And go serve King Jesus. Like, do we have the integrity to be able to say, let's help balance the priorities of these things in your life. And we want to elevate people into the ministry who have the integrity to be able to speak those words into each other's lives and to challenge us forward in this area. And so uh, he starts out with a couple of introductory things. Paul's like, here's why I'm leaving you in Crete. Here's why I'm continuing the missionary journey I'm on, likely after Acts 28, by the way. And so after Acts 28, uh, they, they go back through Crete. They find uh, this successful missionary journey. They find believers in many of the towns of Crete. Paul has to continue the missionary journey on, so he leaves Titus to set some things in order. It's also likely, if you read Acts 2, there were Cretans there on the day of Pentecost who were saved and went back home, and all they had was Pentecost. And so they went back home, and as faithfully as they could, they loved Jesus as faithfully as they could follow Jesus, but they had like a whole one sermon of Christianity to go live Christianity back home. And so there's a little bit of residual error and mess from that. There's this new crop of believers that are are a part of that. And so Paul leaves Titus, and he leaves Titus with his authority, right? I set you there for this purpose, meaning, hey, as y'all read this letter, understand, Titus is my guy, Titus has my authority, and here's what he's about. Finishing what's unfinished. Putting in place what remains. But he didn't tell us really what that is, and so we're left to assume. what's, What's unfinished about structuring the church? And so if you read the letter, what we think that is, is appointing elders as part of the unfinished task. There's got to be leaders here who can hold the line when we go to the next field. Part of what's unfinished is there's doctrinal error in the church that we haven't purged out yet. And you're going to have to go and you're going to have to have some hard conversations. You're going to have to purge the church of these false teachers and doctrines. And then another thing that's out of order is clearly there's a disconnect between Christian teaching and Christian teaching and Christian living. And you're going to have to set some things in order in the lifestyles and behaviors of the people of the church. And so this is what's unfinished. And then he says to appoint elders. Like, okay, great. What does that mean? Right? How, how is the church supposed to look? How is the church supposed to function? I was shocked as I studied this passage 
uh, as I studied some commentaries on this. Because the point that was made is there is almost no instruction on the, in the New Testament about how a church should be organized. You're like, yes, there is. And you'll point me to Acts. There's no instruction about how the church should be structured. There's stories about how this church is structured. There's stories about how Paul went on a missionary journey and Paul appointed elders. But there are not passages that are like, here's how to structure the leadership and order of your church. You know what there is? You have stories about Paul going one way to reach people for Christ and as he comes back, appointing leaders on his way back. We would never do that. You've been a believer for six months while I was gone, so here, go ahead and be the leader and elder of the church. But in frontier missions, you do things you wouldn't do in an established church. But the point is there was leadership that was local that was raised up. The other thing that we find teaching on in the New Testament when it comes to leadership is their qualifications. So what does that tell me? God is much more concerned with who we put in leadership than how that leadership gets structured. God is much more concerned with the kind of character and qualities of people that we allow to lead us and we follow than he is with how they choose to structure it. Another thing that we see is that there is this local emergence of leadership. There's leadership that is wired into and connected to the congregation itself that God saves, God grows, God matures, and then God elevates from within that church to be part of the leadership of that church. So they're qualified leaders. That matters the most. There's local leaders. But another theme that we see throughout Scripture and and in the New Testament as well is there's plural leaders. right? And so whether you go all the way back to Moses and Moses is trying to do this thing all by himself and and his lost pagan father-in-law is like, you've got to stop this. You're going to wear yourself out. Why don't you set up leaders from among the people to lead the big groups and to lead the little groups and to lead the even littler groups and then only the really big stuff they can't handle, you deal with that. Uh, And so there's this plurality of leadership that is part of it. But then how do you structure that? I would say there are ways, plural, to structure the church, not a way to structure the church. While we honor local leadership, we honor qualified leadership, we honor plural leadership. Now, if you're asking Chris his opinion, I see a lot of wisdom to a plurality of elders, multiple elders within the church leading the church. And that's a conversation we'll keep having uh, over time. But I see a lot of wisdom. In the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Right? There's this, this raising up elders, and whether that's elders over house churches within a city or whether that's multiple elders within one church, there's a lot of wisdom to having multiple people in leadership. But here's also something I've learned about leadership. If you get the wrong people in leadership, it does not matter what system of leadership you have. Everybody been part of a good Baptist church where the deacons ran everything? Got the plural and boy, they're cantankerous and ugly and shouldn't be there. Anybody ever been to church? I've been in multiple ones. Anybody ever been to church where the pastor ran everything? And they're cantankerous and ugly and arrogant and ran over people and it was their way or the highway. And I hear from God and you don't, so deal with it. If you get the wrong people in leadership, it doesn't matter your form of leadership. And so there's elder models that collapse because we got the wrong elders. There's pastor models that collapse because we got the wrong people in place. So let's start with qualified, let's move to local, and then let's see God raise up multiple leaders, shared leadership. And and we at Fletcher try to honor that. We have men who are part of the big decision-making things of all the stuff that comes out. Uh, And and I believe they've protected us in deep and wonderful ways because Chris likes to go forward without thinking. And then we've got guys that are like, wait a second, 
Have you thought about no? Okay, let's slow down. Right? That there's so much wisdom, there's so much protection for the body in having multiple leaders. Um, and then he goes into, and I think this is the framing command. They must be above reproach. It happens in verse 6, and it's repeated in verse 7. And so whatever we unpack within these specific qualifications comes this central truth. Are they above reproach? Can legitimate charges be leveled against them from within the church about their integrity, about their handling of issues, about their lives, about their characters, about their homes? Is there legitimate charges to be leveled? And I would say it's also, is there legitimate charges to be leveled by an outside lost and watching world? Paul is deeply concerned with the testimony of the church, especially the the leadership that it's known for in the watching world around him. And so what I would say above reproach means, could a neutral person make a legitimate charge against the church because of one of its leaders? Could a neutral person make a legitimate charge against the church because of one of its leaders? And I think that's what it means to be above reproach. And so some of these qualifications are tough to deal with. Some of them are tough to navigate. I think we look back to, okay, church, because it's, it's gone beyond normal. Hey, I lose my temper sometimes to a pattern and, and, a, and a known within the community for this and seen so often within the church for this that, hey, we need to now step in and, and deal with it. Above reproach. And so now we jump into... Doesn't get easier from here, right? The husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. This is probably the most debated of the qualifications uh, uh, for elder and for deacons that's out there. Um, I say there's both a negative side to this equation, what it means you can't do. But I don't think it's a command that's simply like, uh, don't be divorced and live with your spouse as a roommate and you're fine. Right? So... Chris Fowler would hold his interpretation that uh, this would preclude divorced people from stepping into the, to the office of elder. Now we have, if you think about it, we have dozens of men within the church who love Jesus, love their family, are married, and they'll never be elders or deacons, and, they, and that's fine. They're okay with it. It's great. They serve Jesus. They love Jesus. They love their families. That's part of what they do. And we have men in this church who have had the pain and loss of divorce as part of their life, who Jesus has redeemed and Jesus has used and Jesus has matured and Jesus has grown, and they have vital ministry to the body of Christ and vital ministry to the kingdom of God. And so it's hard questions, right? But that one part, that one task, and that one role is the only thing excluded, not valuable ministry and participation within the body. That's the negative side. The positive side, and I think this is the part we don't talk about. It's kind of like, hey, I had not divorced my wife, so I must be qualified. No. One woman man is what this word means. Positively, do you love with intimacy and passion and growth and faithfulness? Are you all about this one woman who is your spouse? Now, that's a different qualification, isn't it? Do I live with her in love? Do I live with her in honor? Do I live with her loving her as Christ loved the church? Do I live with her and like, I am consumed and passionate in my love for her? That she is, she is outside of Jesus the most valuable, precious, important thing in my life. That's the standard. It is a positive standard because Jesus, uh, marriage is like representing Jesus and the church. And so can I go to a lost world with my marriage and say, it's very imperfect, but there's something here that I would commend to you. 
Because that's what we want our leaders to be able to do. I have the kind of marriage that you can look at and at least it's going to, it's going to fumble you towards the right direction of Jesus in your church. I can go out into the world. I can go out into marriages that are struggling. I can go out and give counseling because there is something in my marriage that is, that is passionate enough, that is, that is beautiful enough, that is faithful enough. So Chris Fowler is all about Amy Fowler. She is amazing. I know you know that because you met her. Like, she is beautiful. I love time with her. I love every moment that I can possibly get with her. Like, I, I don't like trips without her. I don't like that she's away uh, for, for four days with Emily's volleyball this weekend. Like, I can't wait to see her. Like, a day gone is enough. Let's get back. Right? Now, <laughs> Chris is not easy to live with. Chris is not a great communicator unless it's written down on a sheet of paper for him to preach. Wives don't like that so much. But whatever the struggles with communication, whatever the struggles with, with like Chris being hard to deal with, do we both know beyond a shadow of a doubt we are all about, all four, in love with each other? As leaders, are you all about and all four and all in love with your spouse? As those who would be in leadership sometime in the future, are you all about and all for and all in love with your spouse? you up in the middle of the night aren't the most conducive thing to intimacy and connection and love and all the things that, that go with a healthy marriage. But are we all in and all for and all in love with each other? One woman, man, consumed with one woman. Their children are believers, and this is the one I was hoping to avoid because it's not really an easy answer on this one. Uh, what does that mean, right? The normal word for believer is converted, born again, saved. A- another way of translating that word is faithful. But, but, man, there's all kinds of challenges when you say the qualification is your children are believers. Right? How does that work? So can you not be a pastor until, with young children? Or at what age do your children get that if they don't become believers, you move on? What do, how does that work? What control do I have over my kids becoming believers? I have control over teaching. I have control over influence. I have control over putting them in good context. I have no control over their conversion. I have control if I share it. And so a lot of challenges, just to boil it down the simplest I can, and Chris never wants to explain away Scripture, right, to, for his purposes. Honestly, this is probably one I have struggled with at least two or three seasons in my 15 years of Christian ministry has been, am I disqualified? My kids. Am I disqualified? How am I responding to my kids? What do we do with that? And so an article that was helpful to me put it this way. If you take 1 Timothy 3 as a clear passage and Titus as an unclear passage, then how does 1 Timothy help us interpret? And so 1 Timothy says this. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children in submission. And so it is more about does the pastor lead, correct, actively engage with his family, uh, pull his family back into the crowd when they move out, uh, when, they, when they kick out of it. And so it's less about their choices and responses and more about how we respond to bring them back into this crowd. And so Amy and I have done a lot of talking about we have teenagers now. They are two years away from doing whatever they want on their own, and I will know nothing about what they do. I'll know very little about what they do, right? They'll be a couple hundred miles away on a college campus. And so Amy and I have talked about, like, the law puts a corral around us till Jesus comes. That's what Galatians tells us. 
And that's what we have looked to do. It's like they're going to have to roam around some and learn what it looks like to roam around in a bigger and bigger pasture because they're about to get into a really big one without us there. So how do we put a corral around them that keeps them from going off the cliff while praying and seeking and inviting them to believe in Jesus Christ? Now, we have kids that will kick up against the board of that corral. Like I'm hoping that will break so I can get through it. We have ones that love the crowd because it makes them feel good. But the point is, how do we keep them in the crowd, bring them back into the crowd until Jesus comes into their life, saves them, converts them, and makes it real in their life? And so that's how I'm trying to work it out. Uh, I think that's something that's commendable to you is do we, are we active in leading our home back to the gospel and confining them under, you know, this increasing pasture and, until that time comes? You can disagree, you can agree, but that's how I tried to work this out because, you know, it was just a very difficult one to cover. And so the point is this, is there love, partnership, and intimacy within your marriage leaders? Do you look at your marriage and say, there's enough here that I want other people to step towards that? It's not perfect. It's the roller coaster ride of life together and we're doing our best. But there's, a, there's an all about each other that is so evident that I would invite any of you to come and see if Amy and I are all about each other. Now, you might hear a squabble, but are we all about each other? You might hear, man, I just wish he'd be a little more clear with his communication, but we're all about each other. Right? Is that something that's true of your life? And if you're not in leadership in that capacity, I would challenge you. Do you love your wife as Christ loved the church? If you're single, do you love your future wife as Christ loves the church? Do you love your future husband in a way that guides your life and decisions now for the day that will come? Do you have leaders whose lives shout that to you? Second step, do they have personal character that encourage growth in your own character? Do they have personal character that, 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 um, that challenges growth in your own character right our character um is the way we take our inside faith and and portray it in the outside world right our character is how our faith shows up and how we interact with people that can't do anything for us our character is how our inside faith shows up in the way we treat others in the way we uh interact with others and so does my personal character challenge and shape your character Right, and so uh, he goes in and he switches from elder to overseer. There are three words in the New Testament. They all basically are used interchangeably. There's pastor, there's overseer, which is an authoritative function, and then there's elders. And they're all used interchangeably. First Peter chapter 5, I'm an elder, you're an elder, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Right? They, they're used interchangeably. Here, elder, overseer. Right. But look at why this matters so much. You're God's steward of God's family. And if you're God's steward of God's family, it matters how you do your family as a trial run. If you're God's stewards of God's eternal family, then it matters if you live in a way that reflects God well to his children. And so he goes into a list of negative commands and, and positive commands. And so negatives to avoid. And he talks about not arrogant. So again, are you allowed to be arrogant, but once you get into leadership, not? not no. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Arrogance is that sense of being self-important. 
And that's a particular danger for leaders, but it's a, it's a danger that all of us face on a daily basis. Self-importance and pride. Stubbornness and arbitrariness. Am I self-important? And that leads how I interact with you. Don't be arrogant, right? There's grace given to the humble, not to the arrogant. Quick-tempered and violent. As opposed to self-control, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, do we fly off the handle quickly? Are we quick to get upset? Are we quick with our temper? Are we explosive? Not ready for leadership. By the way, if you're quick-tempered and explosive, you're going to have a lot of great opportunities for that to show up if you're in leadership. But self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit that contrasts that. And then violent. Do I use my position, my power, and my authority to manipulate, control, and abuse people? Right, so don't be a violent bully. Don't be someone that beats people into submission. Don't be somebody that manipulates others and uses their position for gain. But then he goes to there are two more I will point out on the negative side of the equation. Not a drunkard. It's the same thing that's in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's the same command about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. Debauchery, same word from this passage. Uh, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is the same word that he's going to say in chapter 2 when he, when he deals with uh, the older women, I believe it is, not slaves to much wine. And so y'all know where Chris stands. If not, here it is. I am a total abstinence person by personal conviction, not by commandment. Meaning Chris does not drink and will not drink till the marriage supper of the Lamb where he provides me wine from his own hand and then I will gladly partake. That is my personal conviction that I will not command out of you. But in saying that, that doesn't mean I won't commend that to you, that I wouldn't say that's a wise choice. That it's not something you should at least prayerfully think through. I do think it's wise, and I do think you should prayerfully think through it. But it is not a command from Jesus that you do that. When you go to leadership, there's obviously leadership segments that you're over where alcohol is a particular risk, temptation, and danger. And I would say it's very unwise to step in the leadership of certain segments and that be part of your, your experience. And then I would say somewhere between that and drunk, there is this ground you have to navigate. So can I have one glass of wine? If your conscience and conviction allows you. But here's what the passage is talking about. If one glass of wine becomes three glasses of wine and you're buzzed, you're in sin and you should repent. If you get to the place where it is no longer a drink in honor and worship of God, but alters your mental state in any way, it's called sin. And I'm not going to back away from that. And so somewhere between one and three drinks or whatever and sin. And then what is it talking about for leaders? If you find that you have a third drink fairly consistently and you become buzzed fairly consistently, you've disqualified yourself from leading Jesus' church. And is it worth it? Right? Because Lemuel's mother's like, it's not for kings to drink wine. Because if they do, they'll pervert justice. And I don't think, again, she's saying you can't have any wine ever. I think what she's saying is there is this perverting, distorting opportunity that more than, you know, whatever that one or two glasses is, that opens, opens up your life to. And so there you are. Do what you want with that. Somewhere in those confines is what is Christian freedom. But don't think that because I have Christian freedom for this, then I can cross this line of, of drunk. I can cross this line of strong drink. Because that's clearly prohibited in the Bible, not by Chris. All right. There are two man killers if you read Proverbs. 
And it's to sons, so they're man killers. It's not to daughters. They would write a different letter if Proverbs was written to a daughter. It's written to their son for wisdom. And there's two ways that their son is going to be killed. And then it's this weird connection. If you read Second Peter, there's two things that false teachers are known for. You know what they are? To keep it G-rated, women that aren't their wife, and money. And if you look at those who have destroyed churches, destroyed ministries, and destroyed families, the vast percentage of them will be somehow connected to women who are not their wives and money that wasn't theirs. Or, and that's what he points out in this text, greedy for gain. Now, clearly, there's this opportunity among leadership to embezzle, to steal, to deal with lack of integrity with church finances, to misuse funds. Clearly, that's prohibited, but lover of money, which Timothy says, or greedy for gain, isn't that so much deeper than that one? Can't your heart latch onto and love money and nobody really ever see that? And so it speaks right down into your heart. Are you someone who's really in love with money? Where money has an undue hold over your heart. Now, yes, there are visible ways that can be seen, but there's invisible ways you can hide that. And, and the Holy Spirit is thrusting that upon you not to be there. That's enough negative. What about some positive? Hospitable is in all these qualifications. Now, if you're at Fletcher Long, you have heard, we want you to open up your home and use it as a base of ministry and welcome, right? If you haven't heard that, we want you to open up your home and use it for ministry and welcome of other people. How on earth is a leader who never opens their home going to challenge a people to open up their home? Leaders must be hospitable. Their home must be a base of ministry. Leaders must be hospitable. Their home must be a place of welcome. There should be people at their table because they're demonstrating what welcoming the family of God is like around the table where their family sits. And if we're going to challenge a people to live with hospitality in their hearts, then we need to be people who live with hospitality in our hearts. And so men, take a look at your table, and if it's empty too often, then feel that weight of conviction, not guilt, but conviction by God to reopen your life and to take down the drawbridge that shuts the world out and pull back the moat that keeps people out and open your front door again hospitable. They love good. They don't love smut. They don't love filling their lives and their minds with this junk. They're self-controlled and they're holy and they're set apart to God. There are so many ways we elevate leaders. We elevate them because they're popular. We elevate them because they're successful in business. We elevate them because they've been here a long time. We elevate them for all of these reasons. And what the text is saying, elevate them because their character is such that and checked on and and observed. And there's a track record of their character because people will always show you who they are over time. If you watch people long enough, they will show you who they are. And so watch them long enough for them to show you who they are and only elevate people, not who are popular, not who are charismatic, not who are gifted, not who are successful, but people of proven character. And you'll solve so many of the problems that you experience in church life. There's one more step, and I'll just hit it quickly. Devotion, uh, does their devotion to the Word challenge your conviction and devotion to the Word? Does their devotion to the Word challenge your conviction and devotion to the Word? Put it this simple. God wrote a book. And since he wrote it, you don't get to, God wrote a book, you don't get to disagree and remove the parts that aren't palatable to your culture. God wrote a book, and you don't get to cut away the things that would offend the lost world that hates your God anyways. 
And so don't you dare give up the book, but especially don't you dare elevate one leader ever who does not cling to this book, hold fast to this book, both with a convictional clinging, we will not let go of faith in this book, and a devotional clinging, I love and live this book. And you're looking for both, and this word includes both. Do you elevate men who convictionally love this book and won't move from it? Do you elevate men who devotionally love this book and you see it evidenced in their life? And both of those things need to be true. Satan would sign our doctrinal statement. He knows theology better than us. Do we love the book? Not just do we agree with it. Hold fast to this word because you've got to instruct people in this word. Hold fast to this word the way it was taught by the book, by the apostles, without changing it. Hold fast to the book. Love the book so that you can instruct people in the book. So that they will be convictional about the book and they will be devotional about the book. They will love it and live it and they will cling to it. It's not going to get easier for you to love the book in your life. It's not going to get easier for you to be a biblical Christian in a secularizing world. And so do you have leaders that have these spines about them, about the book, and they love for the book because it's better than life. They delight in the law of the Lord. Right, The words are better than gold, fine gold, sweeter than honey on the honeycomb. Do you have leaders who feel that way about the book so that when the time comes where it's pressure and hard for you to love the book, there's somebody you can look to and say, they love the book. There's somebody that still loves the book. Not everybody's turned against it. I think I'll love it too. And then so that they can rebuke those who contradict it. I think the most trouble I get in at Fletcher, I don't get in a lot, some, most trouble I get into at Fletcher is I take on our private Facebook page, because these are family discussions, not public discussions, and I post authors you know or books you're, that are popular to you or shows that are popular to you or teachers that I know Fletcher interacts with in some way. And if I find something in their teaching, in their doctrine, in their living that, that would be impactful on how, whether or not you follow them anymore, I share it. So, you know, you, you post something about Beth Moore and people get... A little offended. Beth Moore's drifting. Possibly drifted, but she's drifting. I get, I get messages about there's a There's a show called The Chosen. We watched the first season. We loved it. And then I watched the producer in a video with his own words say, the Mormon Jesus, who is funding a lot of this work, and the Christian Jesus are the same. How do you make a show about Jesus if you don't know that the Jesus of the Christians and the Jesus of the Mormons is a different Jesus? i got a little bit of concern with that. Now, I'm not saying you can't watch or you should watch it. I'm saying you should know that information when you watch it. Jesus Calling, burn your copy. The Shack, don't watch it and don't read it. But these are the kind of things that, that we're called to do to contradict error that can creep into your life through me. Rebuke those who are in error. Rebuke that you can use the word to rebuke. Those who contradict it. So a couple of charges and practical things as we close out. And so we'll start by charging Micah and Anna, but Micah mostly. Your life needs to be marked by loves. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Love your family. There's a lot about ministry that tempts us to let family take second place to, to, to the church. Not to Jesus. They should take place, second place to Jesus. And so love your, love your family, love your wife enough to make sure she's an important factor as y'all sacrifice for the kingdom of God together. She isn't sacrificed in the process. Love the church. 
And the way I would say it and the way I say it to our college students a lot, love the church that is, not the church you wish she, should, she would be. It is hard to fall in love with a real group of local believers. Because a real group of local believers are people with a sin nature, people in process, people who haven't arrived yet. Love them. Wherever God places you and whatever church God places you in, you love the church that God puts in front of you, not the one you, you, you want her to be. Love the word. Hold fast devotionally. Love the lost. Fletcher, a couple of implications as we wrap up. Pursue a deeper intimacy with your spouse and family. Yes, elevate leaders who can point you in that direction. But one of the prime implications of this as being a child of God is you invest what it takes to pursue a deeper intimacy. And men, it starts with you in loving and your spouse and leading your family. Second, pursue a growing character from a gospel heart. When you get in front of Jesus is when you get to stop growing. Not when you've been in church 10 years. Not when you've been in church 20 years. Not when you get the title of leader. When you get in front of Jesus is when you get to stop growing. And not until then. Pursue a growing character from a gospel heart. And then lastly, pursue conviction and devotion to God's word. Pursue conviction and devotion to God's word. It's not going to get easier. Which means you have to answer the questions now before they're asked in public, before they're asked at your job, before they're asked somewhere else. Convictional love for this book, because there's a convictional love for the God of this book and the redemption that he's unfolded for us and the Jesus that he sent for us. Leaders are the first line of defense against loose theology. Leaders are the first line of defense against the breaking apart of morality, the breaking apart of marriages, the breaking apart of living in a way that honors Jesus, the breaking apart of our testimony. We're the first line of defense, and leaders are meant to be these imperfect models that you can look at, and if you kind of head in their direction, you'll be kind of heading in the direction of Jesus. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name we bow. Totally unworthy, but that your blood was shed for us. Totally unworthy, but by grace we have been saved through faith. And by your spirit and by your gospel, you have fit us for the calling. By your grace and by your gospel, you have fit us for your service so that we can now serve the living and the true God. And by your gospel and by your spirit and by your grace, you are raising up leaders. You're raising up Micah to be set apart for the call of gospel ministry. And we see it. We rejoice to see it. We rejoice to commission it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Uh, So the way we're going to do our invitation is a little bit differently. Uh, You can sit during this, uh, but I want to invite you to pray, and I want to invite you to respond. Uh, We'll ask Mike and Anna to go ahead and make their way up to the the small pew up here on front. If you are an ordained man um, at Fletcher or a like-faith church, uh, we could ask you to go ahead and line up. Uh, starting at the bench and walking around the, the, all, uh, the, the wall there. If you are ordained at Fletcher or in a like faith church, we're going to lay hands and pray, on, pray over them one by one. So some of you guys know what you're doing. You've done this before. Come on. Help get it started. Um, and so again, if you're from Fletcher or a like faith church. Uh, so what I want us to do during the invitation is this. Would you spend time praying for Micah? Praying for Anna? Praying for the salvation of, of their children? Uh, praying for God's protection around them. And during this invitation, would you spend time uh, 
what is your response? Is, is God leading to a response in character? Is God leading to a response in areas of leadership within your home? Is he leading to a response in character areas? Because if you hear these qualifications and you have no conviction, then you've missed reading these qualifications. There is an area of the Holy Spirit is going to work in every one of our lives, not just leaders, every one of our lives. And one of these areas, guaranteed, there's conviction. There's room for growth. There's something Jesus wants to adjust in our lives. So respond to Jesus in this time. Pray for Mike and Anna in this time. Uh, when the time comes, we'll stand and sing together. Uh, Trey will cue us into that. So just spend this time praying.